episodes, and you know what that means. This one will be gross. And now here are the podcast hosts who force me to read these measurement puns. Allison Goldberg and Jennifer Davila. Hello, everyone. I'm Jen. I'm Allie. Allie and I are performers who had a live comedy show when that was a thing called Blogologues, where we took the internet, uh, the internet, we took content from the internet and used it as our script live on stage. We then had a web series called Two Girls, One Show, which you can find on Hoo where we interviewed people behind the post and went on scripted adventures. And from there, we now have Two Girls, One Podcast with The Daily Dot and Matt Silverman. Hi, Matt. Hello. And on this here podcast, we interview people behind internet communities and phenomena that we think are cool. Allie, how are you doing today? I'm so sad that you were like that back when that was a thing, because now performance is not a thing. (laughs) I know. I know. Have you done any more uh, online stand-up? Actually, I'm doing one kind of soon. It's a good reminder. (laughs) (laughs) that i should look into when that is but yeah i haven't been super pursuing it because it's just like it's when someone asks it's nice to have that to look forward to but it's just not the same so i've been focusing on a lot of other projects you're doing another podcast i should be upset but actually it's kind of cool (laughs) um not boring workouts can you tell us about it yeah but also i invited both of you to do an episode if you'd like but basically working out is terrible we all know this you just sit there and you count squats all you really need is someone to tell you what to do and entertain you while you do it. So we came up with not boring workouts. Every episode is a new topic. We tell you some moves to do and entertain you while you do it. So we've got um, UFOs are real and so is cellulite. That's a leg day workout. <laughs> we've got um, how not to be a Karen while getting Michelle Obama's arms. I love that one. For women getting the right, the 100th anniversary of women getting the right to vote. I wrote um, elect to move that body the way we got the right to elect our representatives. <laughs> mm. That rolls off the tongue. That's a snappy title. Yeah, they that one's do. really yeah. snappy. I wrote flowers are banging and so is that body. <laughs> You guys know I fucking love flowers. We're doing two a week, so check it out. Oh, damn. Yeah, damn. let me let me know what you think. I'm doing it with a guy named David. He's fun. So uh, <laughs> if you have any thoughts or opinions, you can tweet me at Allie Gold, L-L-I-G-O-L-D. Yeah, but is he as fun as me? Jennifer, no one's as fun as you. Thank you. No, I know David. He's quirky and he's cool and he's a great guy. Are you working out more now that you're making this podcast about working out? No, absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> the problem is that I record the workouts. I can't do them while I record them. And then, mm-hmm. no, the result is I'm not working out, but you should. You can find yeah. not boring workouts wherever you get your podcasts. But Jen, you have all kinds of big news this week. Big news. <laughs> big news. Well, first of all, guys, you know, Like most of you, I hate carrying around a lot of loose change. I'm sure you feel the same. And I've been collecting coins. I'm sorry. Are we in an ad break now? Is this a a spot? I I was not notified of this. No, it's not an ad. Matt, let um, it happen. Do you hate carrying around change? Sit down. Sit down. (laughs) 
<laughs> but, you know, I've been throwing it in jars around my apartment. I think I had like um, a Ziploc full of change, like two, like I had like a milk bottle full of change. Like it looked like I'd been collecting it since the 1950s or something. <laughs> I had a lot of change. So I finally took it to Coinstar this weekend and I just was curious for you guys. This is the news. Yeah, this is my news. Can you guys guess how much money I had in change in my apartment? What do you think? This is amazing. $256.17. Okay, Matt, what do you think? All right. So you've been collecting since the 1950s. I would um, say eight to 10 years. (laughs) Factoring in inflation. I'm going to say... Could be higher. I'm going to say $1. I don't want to go over. So I'm going to say $1. (laughs) Allie wins. Ding, 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 ding. It was $279. Oh Damn, my god, I was you were so close. So close. I know. <laughs> this wow. is not an ad, but this is a PSA that if you have change in your apartment, seriously get to Coinstar already. I know it's heavy. Get a ride, you know? That's what I did. Just do it already. And if you sign up for Acorn today, it'll invest all your loose change. <laughs> Use my referral code. I don't have it pulled up. That's uh that's a lo- that's a chunk of change. I know. Um but my real news is that Adam is moving into my apartment on Friday. And uh, where's yeah. the airport? Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so if you've been with us since the beginning, you know, in the very beginning of this podcast, I hadn't even met Adam yet. We you've been on this I know, journey they with were us. Here for the whole journey. <laughs> yeah. And it kind of feels like I'm moving out, even though I'm not, but I'm just making a lot of space for him. You know, we're going to bring his couch here. We're going to, uh, you know, <laughs> I have to take out half my clothes so he can bring in half his clothes in. This is quite yeah. the ordeal. It's taking a I'll take your clothes. <laughs> okay. That's good to know. I am. I will, I'll make an alley bag of jammy downs. some great jammy downs. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm just imagining Allie wearing like, you know, clothes that are like three feet too tall for her. And then just, <laughs> no, it's like, like when a kid dresses up like no, their parents. they're shorts for Jen and their pants for me. Okay. Exactly. Right, yep. Midriffs for me. Uh, Full length dresses. <laughs> That's yeah, actually Allie. my art. We can wear the same clothes. I can wear Allie's clothes too. It's been proven. Yeah. <laughs> no, I have some great jammy towns that I still wear to this day. Yeah. Excellent. Anyhow, that's the news. But guys, we haven't even mentioned what today's show's topic is. (laughs) Poor listeners. Let's do it. (laughs) So we are talking today to the author of a book just out called How to Handle a Crowd, The Art of Creating Healthy and Dynamic Online Communities. And this isn't the exact focus of the book, but what we wanted to put our focus on today with this esteemed guest <laughs> is uh, about why some communities work online and become, you know, amazing and others fail and become not so amazing. So uh, she will be with us shortly, Anika Gupta. We look forward to speaking with her. In case uh, you didn't know, this podcast is all about communities. So we are talking to the pro now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's kind of a meta show. It's not about a community. It's about communities. It's so meta. Yeah. If you're confused, so are we. But we're just going to roll with it. (laughs) We're going to see what happens. So let's get ready. I think it's time for trivia. I got a fun one for you. I'm ready. It's about one of the oldest running, still running, online communities ever. Uh, This might be the longest one or or among them. Uh, It's a place on the little old internet called 
The Well, W-E-L-L, which has been operating online continuously since 1985. Now, I'm, I'm not a mathematician, but if you subtract 1985 from 2020 that we're in now, that's like 240 years. That's a <laughs> yeah, long so, fucking time. Yeah, it's about Exactly. Well, W-E-L-L, uh, and bear with me here, it stands for Whole Earth Electronic Link. And, and electronic is electronic, but with the E removed with an apostrophe so that you can spell the word well. Pretty good, right? Love it. So clever. Sure. Especially for 1985. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it began as a dial-up bulletin board system, a BBS, and evolved into a web-based platform. Uh, it's essentially a message board with forums on the well. They are called conferences. So uh, think of a subreddit. Uh, and these can be literally about anything, movies, Buddhism, the Grateful Dead, women's issues, health, jokes, food, whatever you're interested in, there is a conference for you. The well was always, from its inception, about just hanging out on the internet and talking, a a thing that we take for granted uh, on modern web platforms. Uh, It's usually referred to as a virtual community, not a social network. You need to pay a monthly fee to access it. In the old days and still today, it costs $15 to uh, subscribe to the service. As of June 2012, I know that's a long time ago, but that's the last reported estimate I could find, only 2,693 members, like paying active members on this site, which is interesting. So... In its heyday, it was populated by many influential thinkers and computer programmers, essentially the white male boomers who went on to build the modern internet. The well never had huge numbers, but it is regarded by historians as an extremely influential place. A lot of cool stuff has happened there. So today's question yeah what the fuck I'm, where is I'm, the question uh, this that is i'm just gonna go so long i'm just gonna give you 20 to 30 more minutes of uh backstory here oh my god here's the question <laughs> i'm gonna give you three culturally important moments that happened on the well one of them is real the other two i made up this morning are you ready <laughs> wow way to be last minute matt <laughs> all right we're ready a In 1994, two computer engineers posted about how they felt that communication on the well was super slow, especially compared to Internet Relay Chat, IRC. So they joined forces to create a real-time chat protocol that they eventually sold to America Online. That technology became AOL Instant Messenger. Wow. That's choice A. B, the well has an extremely active Grateful Dead forum, and this was a major factor in the reunion of the band after Jerry Garcia died in 1995. Guitarist Bob Weir told Rolling Stone that, quote, they couldn't find the courage to tour again without those fans from the World Wide Web, end quote. Or C, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, an important nonprofit advocacy group for internet civil liberties and privacy was founded in 1990 by three guys who met on the well. The what? EFF has gone on to protect our rights and, and such and has sued our governments and corporations. So that all began on the well. So which of these scenarios is true from the early days of this uh, long-lived online community? Oh, man. I'm going to go with B. Okay. Ellie goes with the Grateful Dead. I was also going to go with B. This always happens, but let me find a different (laughs) answer to diversify our portfolio. I'm going to go with A. Okay. Jen chooses the beginnings of AOL Instant Messenger. 
Allie says the Grateful Dead reunion will find out what happened on the well in the 90s when we come back. Hey everyone, we're talking about communities today, and so we want to take a moment to thank our community for being the absolute best, but especially these fine folks. The following people are our Patreon supporters, listeners of the show. They're contributing at a $10 or more level, and we cannot thank them enough. Thank you to Jerry Duran. Also, the reason we have today's guests is Jerry Duran, Jessica Fox, Melissa Elliott, James Dozier, Christopher Latch, Kathy Phillips, William, Matthew Scott. We so appreciate you supporting our show, contributing to 2G1P. And if the rest of you are interested, go to patreon.com slash 2G1P uh, to make a donation. Any amount helps. Thank you so much. And now a real post entitled, So Embarrassing, Facepalm Emoji, from the social network that most people should be embarrassed about, Next Door, courtesy of Best of Next Door. <laughs> I just want to say thank you to the lady that walked with me this morning with both of our dogs. I did not realize that you were not the gal I was supposed to be walking with. Just this week, I joined a walking group, and today was my first day. When I ran into you, I really thought you were the gal I was supposed to be meeting. (laughs) I did not mean to stalk you all the way to your house. And thank you for listening to my crazy life story about my broken computer and teaching first grade and distance learning. All I know is she teaches fifth grade in Rancho. As soon as she walked into her house, Jody, the lady I was supposed to be meeting, called asking if they had missed me. Hmm. Imagine my surprise when I realized I was walking and talking with a complete stranger. Anyway, thank you for walking with me. And if you know who you are, please PM me so I can assure you I'm not a total nutcase. And maybe you can start walking with the group too. Sorry again. I would absolutely make that same exact mistake. You would? <laughs> yeah. Have you made that just mistake? Start, just start talking someone's fucking ear off, having no idea they're not the person I'm meeting. I would do that. Like no context about the walking group. You just like launch right into your life story. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Anywho. Yeah. Trivia. Well, let's hear it. All right. What happened on the well? The internet's possibly oldest and longest running uh, online community. Something magical happened there in the 90s. <laughs> Ali went with Grateful Dead reunion. I did. Jen went with uh, the computer engineers creating AIM. I have the correct answer if you're prepared. I don't know. I mean, yes, I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> the correct answer is, unfortunately, C. Oh. The Electronic Frontier Foundation has its roots in the well. The one that we didn't fucking choose. The one that got away. The one that got away. So I'm I'm very sorry for your loss, but uh, (laughs) I found this interesting. Uh, John Gilmore, John Perry Barlow, and Mitch Kapoor are activist writers and computer scientists who are observing that, you know, as the web was getting going in the early 90s, uh, governments were not understanding the internet very well and making policies that violated people's rights, uh, companies too, of course. Uh, Specifically, in April of 1990, John Barlow had been visited by an FBI agent in relation to the theft of source code for some Macintosh software. Uh, Barlow noted that the FBI agent who was questioning him 
literally had no clue how technology worked and therefore could not make informed like law enforcement decisions about who is a suspect and who should be investigated or whatever. So Barlow then went back onto the well and shared this experience. And then Mitch Kapoor contacted him with almost like a very similar encounter with law enforcement of like, these people who are supposed to be protecting us and fighting the bad guys have no idea how hacking works and how software works and all this stuff. So uh, these conversations that they had on the well led to the EFF, which was founded only months later, uh, July of 1990. And from there has gone on to uh, protect our, our electronic civil liberties for many, many years to come. So cool. All right, folks, it is time for our interview. We're very excited to have with us the author of How to Handle a Crowd, The Art of Creating Healthy and Dynamic Online Communities. Please welcome Anika Gupta. Welcome, Anika. Hey, nice to see you both. Well, nice to hear you both. Thank you for having me. I know. <laughs> sure. Thanks for being here. I, I have to say the first like 20 episodes we ever did, I'd always be like, nice to see you. <laughs> nice. <laughs> anyway, it's great to have you here. We are thrilled to talk about online communities with you. We thought we were experts, but you are in fact a certified expert. <laughs> we're feeling, we're feeling a little insecure, you know, because <laughs> we thought that we were the community gurus, but now it seems that we might be bested. I'm not sure yet. <laughs> Neither am I. I share your insecurities. So we could, you know, there's that. The word expert is is such a it's such a challenge to accept that. But I definitely am fascinated by online communities just the same way you are. Well, you know what? We thought we would kick this off with a little challenge and see how great your knowledge is. <laughs> but also our own. So, mm-hmm. so we're gonna that. quiz you on a couple communities and we wanna know if you can share a fun fact from any of these communities. Are you ready for this challenge? Oh, God. Uh, yes. Okay. I mean, Great. maybe. <laughs> we did not, listeners, prepare Anika for this at all, as you can probably tell. Yeah, no preparation. <laughs> and I if also you am fail, not prepared. I did not authorize this. So, yeah, and if you uh, fail miserably, it'll be really fun. And also, we can always edit it out if you hate it. But <laughs> for now, get ready. Okay, now, first question is, episode 20 of Two Girls, One Podcast. I'm sure you've listened to all of the episodes, Anika, mm-hmm. but um, I In wanted detail, to know. Yeah. Um, yes, I, I'm sure you listened to all 476 hours. After this, I will quiz you on my dating life. But before that, episode 20, what can you tell us about adult babies? Go. Uh, adult babies. Okay. Um, Mm -hmm. not a Mm -hmm. community I have studied. Uh, I did Mm -hmm. study several niche communities, but I, yeah, I would say my knowledge of adult babies is probably less than yours. Okay. (laughs) All right, Jen, it's time for the sound effect. Oh, Oh, sorry. Is that that a sound sound effect? I can't quite tell. It was supposed to be booing. I'm playing it for my phone. We're really okay. professional over here. Next up, because we didn't tell Matt either. But we wait, just queued these up ourselves. Wait, yeah, I could have had good stuff queued up. Aren't you and I also playing, though, Allie? Can we offer a fun fact about adult oh, babies? Oh, sure. Yeah, Jen, go for it. Well, I might also get the boo. Uh, this is maybe obvious to all of you listeners, but uh, if you're an adult baby, you can also be a diaper lover, somebody who cares for an adult baby. 
Do I get applause? <laughs> it's, there we oh, go. thank God. Okay, thank God. Thank God. <laughs> it was pinwheeling. Okay. Okay, let's keep this moving. Okay. All right, Anika, can you tell us anything about bronies? Have you encountered bronies? Episode 42 oh. of Two Girls, One Podcast. Bronies came up for me in grad school. Um, really? Which <laughs> you, is not a sentence you hear often. Uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah, because the graduate program I was in focused on studying fandoms and fan communities. And so we actually studied bronies as this like amazing example of a very positive, um, often somewhat misunderstood like community of people who just like love the message of like, you know, like the fellowship and, and love and, and magic. Oh, that's so beautiful. So Alex, yes. Perfect. That was perfect. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, Wait, one fun fact about bronies from our end, because we had the pleasure of attending BronyCon years ago to uh, for Two Girls, One Show, our web series, is that I learned for the first time that there are military bronies, like mm. a pretty large group of people who identify as people in the military who are also bronies. So that was something new for me as well. Okay, let's hear about furries. Do you know anything about furries, Anika? Yeah, so I didn't necessarily write about furries for the book, but it's a community I was interested in and like explored um, writing about. So I think one of the things that was interesting to learn about furries for me is that it's often not sexual, uh, which I think is a is a misconception that many people have. A lot of times it's just about celebrating your, you know, uh, furry persona, your fursona. Love it. Nice. Thank right, you all do- for holding for the applause. And my fun fact is that their dance parties are sick. All right. <laughs> We're skipping to a new community. It's called Lunars, Two Girls, One Podcast, Episode 5. What do you know about Lunars? Absolutely nothing. What are Lunars? Oh, <laughs> Jen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, that's so no. rude. We just met you. I'm so sorry. Oh, no. <laughs> um, well, they are people with a balloon fetish. And oh. there are many ways to enjoy the balloon. You can squeeze it, pop it, uh, just let the air out. <laughs> I don't know, Allie, do you remember? <laughs> do I wanted rem- to have some like cool, fun phrase. Like, you can pop it, whop it, smack it, whack. Like, I just like, you know, I wanted to find yeah, something I fun. I did learn about this reading, like, you know, a Dan Savage, like, column from yesteryear, but uh, I didn't know the name. Well, there you go. I (laughs) have been hitting Dan Savage hard in quarantine. All right, we have one more for you. And this is just our warm-up, by the way. We will find out many more important things about Anika. (laughs) (laughs) After this, this, the internet interview is over. Okay, what can you tell us about Vor? Not yet a Two Girls, One Podcast episode. We're still looking for a guest. Sidebar audience members, tweet us at Gold at Junebugger. What do you know about Vor? Oh, God. I don't think I can tell you anything about Vor. I feel terrible. I can't and bear to give any boo. We right, literally we'll just met her. <laughs> Yay. Okay. Wait, this is, is this a frequent feature? This quiz? I feel no. like I have not heard it before. This has never happened before. This has this never is happened out of control. to us. Vor is a fetish around getting eaten. It tends to pair with macrophilia. So basically like giantess women eating men or shoving them up their hoo-hahs. That's what I know so far. We're still looking for a guest. 
All right. All right. It's time to ask you questions about your life. (laughs) You did a great job. Thank you so much for playing along. We just wanted to try out a fun little warm up. Hopefully it was fun for you. We're so sorry if it wasn't. (laughs) It was fun for me. I have no regrets. No regrets. (laughs) It's going to lead to some weird Google searches for me, but it was a fun warm up. You're welcome. (laughs) That is our podcast in a nutshell. Series of weird Google searches. So we would love to know a little bit about your background first to get started because we know you've done many things over time. So who are you, Anika? And how did you really get into this uh, research, you know, this line of work in particular, writing this book? How did this all come about? Yeah. So I started studying online communities about five, six years ago. I'm trying to count back. I've lost all conception of time. Uh, so basically, <laughs> the way this began is that I uh, I studied journalism when I was an undergrad. And so I, and I was working as a journalist. And as a result, I became really familiar with what I guess I would think of as like the tragedy of the comment section, uh, which mm-hmm. I'm sure you all will be familiar with as well. But basically, I the more and more time I spent like writing about like digital media, publishing articles online, talking to other journalists, the more I realized um, how much journalists were often disappointed by what happened in the comments section. And it was kind of, I mean, this is kind of an aphorism we all know, right? Like, don't read comments; they're they're dreadful. Um, and like the comment sections on news websites are often, I think, uniquely awful. And so I became really interested in kind of why that was. Started working in, I guess, a space that we would think of as like more participatory journalism, where I was spending a lot of time like interfacing with people on social media. And like that became a lot more of a focus. And I was just really interested in both the culture of journalism and kind of this culture of like online participation as evidenced, not just in the comment section, but elsewhere. And kind of where those cultures came into conflict and how that kind of led to some of the problems we saw in the comment section. And I started interviewing a lot of people who were working as comment moderators at news organizations or for whom that had become a part of their job. And it was kind of a weird path that people took to get there. So like many of the people I talked to were journalists. They had studied journalism, but maybe they, you know, they wrote a blog. And so they were really interested in the comments and started moderating the comments. Or maybe they were hired like out of school into this kind of new and emerging area of like engagement where they were supposed to be on social media and also moderating comments and interfacing with people. And so that kind of became my first window into the really fascinating work, um, the details of the really fascinating work that moderators do online and kind of the, not just the ways in which they do it, but the ways in which it's challenging and difficult for them. So I talked to a lot of folks about like their experiences with like online abuse and, you know, how it changed their relationships and, and their perception of their job, but also, um, just how challenging it is sometimes to, to, to manage being a comment moderator and like, what platforms make available to you. Like a lot of the frustration I heard was about like how tools that existed really didn't match like the way that online conversation unfolded and like how, you know, there just weren't good, there weren't good tools available for things that people needed to get done. So I think there were a lot of different like interesting um, challenges that that moderators were, were dealing with. And I also really saw how important their role was to shaping what happened. You know, we often talk about like the tragedy of the comments as being like a tragedy of poor moderation, at least especially in the world of news. And I think that that was something that I agreed with. And so it became a chance for me to really study and understand moderators. And then I kind of did that work for a while, continued to be interested and realized, okay, like you, I've talked about 
news a whole lot, but there's actually a really wide universe of like comment and online community and moderation that pre that existed, you know, alongside and even before this world of news. And so the book is really a chance to delve into like moderators in a ton of different spaces outside of that and really get to understand like how do their different communities function? How do they interact with technology? How do they interact with expectations? And some of those great questions. So we wanted to focus on, you know, community aspect today. And we were curious if you have any thoughts around um, what constitutes a community? What, what, how would you classify that? Like, is it subreddits, uh, you know, of course, but like also like uh, people who are like the wiki editors, like what, <laughs> how do you talk about communities when we're online? I think it's such a great question because there's actually not one consistent definition of the term community. And it's actually like a bit of a frustrating buzzword sometimes. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of different ways I approach this. So um, in I will just briefly quote like two academics whom I actually quoted in my book. And they said that, you know, they define community as people who come together for a particular purpose and who are guided by policies, including norms and rules and supported by software. Out of that, I kind of took this idea, okay, people, purpose, policies, and software. Like those things kind of come together in a community. But that's a fairly, that's a great definition. It can also feel a little dry. So I actually also asked a lot of the moderators whom I talked to how they defined community. And I think that I got a lot of different and really interesting definitions. So I had people who talked about creating a common cause, people who talked about, you know, uh, taking care of each other, uh, people who talked about, you know, taking care of their neighborhood or community. Uh, So each of the moderators I talked to had actually a pretty clear definition of how they defined a community that really came from what their community was. But a lot of times they talked about this idea of like common purpose or common care. I love that. (laughs) Sort of on the flip side of that, what would you say are the different types of communities, right? So we've heard about, you know, the the benevolent dictator, um, moderators, admins, like, can you classify the types of communities? And when I say types of communities, I think it's hard because when I think about there's so many different dimensions, like there are communities that exist only online. There are communities that have a blended online and physical component. There are communities that are sort of online, but they're really primarily intended only to support like an offline purpose, uh, a physical purpose. So that's one dimension. Um, you could also classify communities by like their size. You could classify by how public they are um, in terms of like how visible their conversations are. For example, like YouTube comments on and Reddit, very public and very visible. Secret Facebook groups, much less so. But again, that's only one dimension. You know, you could classify online communities by their size, uh, you know, how many members they have or by their complexity, like how many of those members are active at a time and how much they can do. But in terms of types of moderation, what I refer to as like whether a moderator is a community moderator or let's say a more contract moderator. The way I thought about community moderators in general is that they are uh, they can be paid or volunteer. A community moderator is somebody who is often known to members of their community. They're doing visible work. They're dealing with relationships. And they're often acknowledged within the community as somebody who has power or authority. Maybe people don't enjoy their power or authority, but they're kind of seen that way. But there is also this other side of moderation that we're all very aware of. And this becomes really important when you think about like large technology companies, which we think of as potentially contract moderation. And this actually comes up, you know, in a lot of professional spaces, including journalism. And contract moderators 
moderators often work for like a separate firm, um, the job of moderation might be outsourced to them. Their names and actually their function is often not explicitly spelled out to members of the community. Members of the community might not even know they're there. And a lot of times the contract moderators are basically like reading flagged objectionable content and, you know, like so resolving like it in Facebook's some way. content moderators are all like exactly. scarred from working exactly. insane hours and in some <laughs> yes. like warehouse condition. Exactly. Okay. Right. And they're having like, you know, like obviously having like horrible, like, you know, post-traumatic stress and all of that. Um, some of those challenges can actually happen when you're also a community moderator. Um, but, but it's a different type of role because the community doesn't know you're there. And so I think those were like, that was one of the distinctions that I thought about. Um, I also looked at like whether people were paid or unpaid. A lot of the people I looked at for this book, although not all of them were volunteers. So I think that's like another really interesting dimension because if you're not working for money, then like you're working for something else, you know? Yeah. Let's move on towards building a community. So what would you say are the biggest do's and don'ts of building an online community? In other words, how does a community become as perfect as Two Girls, One Podcast? <laughs> I mean, it's very hard, right? I mean, I guess I know, you know, I know. it's have to be perfect. You know, find true, perfect, so. perfect people. Uh, no, I, uh, <laughs> I think there are a couple of things. Um, in general, I, most of the moderators whom I spoke to who felt like they had successful communities, they were prepared to invest a lot of time and emotional energy into their community. So it meant like not just that they were setting it up in the beginning, but that they were pretty carefully like, you know, tending the, the gardens of conversation, so to speak, you know, watering seeds, having one-on-one -on -one conversations with individual members. So I would say like the first thing is like, you know, think thinking about how much time and energy you're willing to invest into the community and being prepared for that. Like that's one key part. Um, then the other was really understanding the purpose of the community. Like we talked about purpose as being one of the things that helped define a community earlier. I think that again, you have to know like what it is that you want people to come together for. Like maybe you want to create like an activist community and you want them to come together and like share t tips and, and, you know, advocate for a cause or strengthen each other's actions. And so you have to kind of keep different finding things towards that purpose. Maybe you want it to be a space where people come together to chat about like, you know, their favorite like novels or their favorite games. And so you want to like promote that kind of conversation. And then you have to think about like, how do you want them to have that conversation? Like, you know, do you want them to be having like deep text-based conversations? Do you want them to like have a space to like play the game together? Do you want them to like share like, you know, their own fan art? Um, so you have to have a really clear sense of like what the purpose is going to be. So, I mean, for you all, I'm sure when you think about your community, also you're asking yourself like, yes, all these people love Two Girls, One Podcast, but like, how do we want them to like contribute back? Like, what do we want them to do with that love? You know, um, like, do they just talk to each other? Do they contribute ideas to the show? Do they like create fan art that we then look at and feel good about? You know, um, it's, it's, so it's, you have to ask yourself that. So I think that that's another key part of it is like understanding that purpose. Um, and then you shape your guidelines kind of thinking about that purpose. And so your guidelines will cover things like what is on or off topic, what is kind of acceptable behavior. And I think guidelines are actually like, I mean, they're living documents for the most part. They changed like pretty much every moderator I talked to. They were like, if you point to a rule, the reason it exists is because somebody violated it, you know? So we like knew like there was somebody messed up and then we made a rule about it, you know? <laughs> so this comes up all the time. So I think that they are living documents, but I think one of the things that was really interesting for me when studying guidelines is just like how much 
like ambiguity or disagreement there is around very common terms, like terms like unproductive or even terms like hateful. You know, like we're often like that's like a word that we talk about a lot in the online community is like, what is hateful? How do we keep out hateful conversation? People don't agree on what is hateful. So I think like a good set of guidelines has to really spell out like cl very clear things like these are words that we object to or, you know, here are behaviors that are going to result in this action. Like you have to be really clear about what it is. And then, I mean, you know, of course, the other response, of course, is you can say, you know, we're the moderators and we're kind of the bosses. And like, you know, if you don't really agree with us, that's fine. You can go to another community. The Internet is your oyster. Uh, so I think that that's, you know, that's a key part is thinking about that. And then the final, I guess, thing I would really think about is whom you're able to include. And I think this is where, you know, this is also where I think a lot of those early news comment communities that I studied kind of but got a little bogged down is that they were so interested in this idea of what I would call like perfect inclusivity. They were like, everybody can wander in and say whatever they want. And we want to have a dialogue with like all of the citizens of our great democracy and like all of the participants in our great democracy and like, you know, give them all a say. And the reality is that that is a really hard mandate. Like, it's just, I mean, I think having that kind of, that kind of a space is not I, it's hard for me to envision a world where it's successful. Um, and I think as a moderator, I think you just like burn out and get frustrated. So I think the final part also is like understanding like what is like kind of the sphere of debate for you and who are the people you're willing to include and who are some of the people you are going to be excluding and kind of accepting that and being okay with it. You know, so as a moderator, the more actively engaged you are in thinking about that, the better and healthier your community is going to be. Would you be um, willing, Anika, to give us an example of a thriving community, just something that you, one of them that you have come in contact with that you think is really like living up to what a good community should be? Yeah. So one of the ones that I really enjoyed, and this became like the first chapter of my book, is a group called Make America Dinner Again. Are you are you familiar with this group? <laughs> no, oh, I want to yeah. be. Okay, so the the, uh, the the name alone is quite clever. Um, so basically, it was started by these two um, women, Justine and Tria, um, and it was in the aftermath of the 2016 election. And they actually started it as an in-person dinner series intended to bring together people with like differing political viewpoints to help them like have a dialogue. So their initial motivation was, you know, when we look at political dialogue, especially online, it feels very broken. Like either people are flinging insults at each other or they're just in bubbles of like their own like-minded friends. And, you know, that's not great for us, like understanding how to communicate across what seems to be a growing partisan divide. That was their initial starting point. And there are like other in-person groups that do things around this sort of challenge. So they started the series called Make America Dinner Again, and they started by hosting dinner parties in, and they had a host, um, a host slash moderator, and they had like a really elaborate set of like kind of guidelines for how to moderate these conversations and what tools would be made available. Um, and so they also like the moderators had a different role from participants. They were, they tried to remain like they, they tried not to express their own opinions. They tried to let like other people, they wanted other people to feel safe. They also spent a lot of time thinking about like, how do you create an atmosphere of kind of safety where people can talk about things that are difficult to talk about with each other. And so the term that they used with me was this idea of like, how do you humanize people whom you may not necessarily agree with. And so a lot of their dinner agenda, like they actually began it, they sent me the agenda for one of their early dinners, um, really involved like facilitating one-on-one -on -one conversations or starting with like kind of lighter conversations that would then prove a gateway to like more serious discussion. So it wasn't like everyone came into the room and they were like, so should XYZ thing be legal? Go. 
you know, um, they really thought about it. But they were not super interested in being online. And so then they, but then they started noticing that like they weren't necessarily, like it was hard to organize dinners. They had a lot more interest in people coming to dinners and they had people available to host them. You know, they, um, they wanted to keep the conversation going after dinner was over. So they're like, okay, if we decided to do a Facebook group, what would that look like? And Facebook, you know, pretty ubiquitous platform um, at that point in time. So they started looking into kind of how to bring that discussion online. And so they kind of came up with a series of like, they wrote out some of the key things that they did as moderators in person. It's like, how do you encourage like empathy between people? How do you build one-on-one connections? How do you create a way for people to get moderators attention if they're stressed? Um, And they started to think about and match that to like things that existed in the Facebook interface or things they could do as moderators in the group. So they had this like pretty clearly defined set of like principles and practices. Um, And then they opened their group up. And so now they have, last I checked, they had between six and 700 members, I want to say. Um, and it is a fairly, it's a group that's kind of like expanded and grown and changed over time. Um, and you know, they, they spend, they do have discussions about like often very challenging topics. They do have discussions between people who have very different viewpoints. Um, and I think that that is like in kind of being a part of that, I think they demonstrate a moderation philosophy that is in many ways, fairly hands-on, but seems to be working for their community. Like the conversations continue. I think there are a lot of questions that can come out of that model, of course. Like the moderators themselves spend a lot of time kind of thinking about political balance, both among their moderator team and among their participants. They also said that they've really thought about like, how do you bring up really difficult topics? So like one of the topics that we talked about was abortion, right? Which is like a hugely controversial topic online. And they said that they had had discussions that flamed out on this topic. And so as moderators, they'd kind of built up like a very clear procedure. Like, first of all, they said that when we approve questions on like that are related to abortion, we really go for things that are very focused on detail, like asking like a really nuanced question about like the specifics of a particular law or a particular viewpoint is going to be a little easier because in order to even read the question and respond to it, you need to kind of dig into detail instead of just asking a very direct question about something. Um, and then they also said that they have like a moderator procedure, like when they approve a question on a topic like this and it's going to go live, like one moderator will flag other moderators and they'll kind of be standing by. They might actually put in an initial comment, like we know know, like discussions on this topic are going to get difficult. Like, here's how we're available to help. Um, So they really think a lot about like actively moderating some of those more challenging conversations, but they're able to have them. Needless to say, this is not a group that everyone is going to be able to or want to join. And that's totally understandable, but it works well for them. We wanted to look a little more specifically about um, engaging communities. So for instance, how can we engage our own community? You know, like, We've had a little bit of fan art, but it might be nice to get more. And um, one time someone sent us maple syrup and we wanted to know how we could get more gifts. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Well, you're probably going to get them now. Like now that you've indicated you're open to gifts. Um, (laughs) I don't know. I've been making hints about Trader Joe's and setups for like three years and nobody's nobody's jumped on that. Well, I mean, I I would say it's because they they don't know where you live, but that's probably a good thing. Like, I don't know if you should just tell the internet where you live. (laughs) 
So your your question about fan art. Well, so I mean, I think that fan art is like a fun little path to go down. You may end up with uh, more than you bargain for. But I will say like you could create like a little like fan art channel in like your, you know, like mm. platform. <laughs> yes. So I talked to this one guy who runs a creepy pasta channel. His name is Nightmind. Um, and he also loves fan art. And so he will respond to like almost all the fan art that he receives. Uh, and he will like retweet it or he will like reblog it and he'd be like oh i love this it's so fun and interesting or you know here's what i like about it so you know i think people who create fan art they want validation so you should you have to like start validating your fan art creators and sharing their genius so that's that's one thing you can definitely do um you can make like a little fan art friday sort of a situation oh fan art fridays i like it jamila let's do it Well, on a related note, I know you've mentioned in your work and so far on this interview that communities really depend on the moderators, right? So something Mm -hmm. that I thought was really interesting that you said, not today, but that essentially if an asshole is leading a community, rather than having everyone oust the asshole, it's more likely that it will become a community of assholes. Is that correct? (laughs) I did say that, yes. I said communities (laughs) of assholes are a thing. (laughs) Yeah. So what are we going to do about Matt? Um, I mean, how can Jen and I oust Matt before everyone in our community becomes an asshole? Do you think I'm holding you back? Yeah, I think think he's going to (laughs) morph the community into a community of assholes. I'm just worried. Well, like, side note, Matt was not prepared for any part of this interview. <laughs> I mean, he just like, what did I sign up for? What is going on? Okay, um, I'll move. I'll move on from that fake question. I mean, you can have people like vote, you know, moderators out. I mean, it's hard, um, but okay. you know, you can. That's like a, a thing that sometimes happens. We're have a coup. Um, you could have a coup. You could also just like have a little splinter community for the assholes. Like, it could be like the asshole space and that's where they can like you know <laughs> practice their techniques and stuff yeah 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 <laughs> like an like an anti anti mat like private channel okay mm-hmm. cool so um all right i think we've all seen that basically things get out of control the bigger a community gets um we always knew that size does matter so thank you for confirming that but also um <laughs> what are things that communities should be keeping in mind as they grow because i know there's a lot of actually i think you just said this basically something goes wrong and then a rule is created right how can we kind of move <laughs> away from that stage of community building to a more intentional form in which we know what to keep in mind before things get too big? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think scale is hard for like many reasons, but also because like as a, uh, then the like one-on-one connections and context are kind of hard. Um, so I actually talked to somebody who runs a, um, a subreddit for Final Fantasy fourteen. One of the things that he mentioned to me is they started noticing that their community was going through a period of growth. Um, and the question that they had to answer was, how do we get ready for like constant eternal September? Basically, it's this idea of like constantly getting influxes of newcomers who don't know the rules of your community and therefore through like no necessarily negative intention can mess it up and and disrupt it. For you as a moderator, it becomes very exhausting to keep up with that. One of the things that he said he really took a look at was they started thinking about like 
how many rule infractions they saw and how frequently they saw them. And so when they started seeing like more rule infractions, like in an hour, that's when they knew that the complexity of like what was happening on their community was expanding. So they started thinking about like, how do we, of course, like how do we hire more moderators? That was part, the first part of it. But the other part was like, how do we think about like creating ways to manage the fact that we need to do more as moderators. So like they started researching, like Reddit has, has like a bunch of tools, some created by Reddit, some created by like, you know, passionate users of Reddit that moderators can use. And so they started looking at like, what are ways that we can like better adapt and use some of these tools? Like, are there ways that we can use an auto moderator to like append and, and, you know, responses to like common violations, you know? And this is something like a lot of people who are managing really large communities, but especially ones with a lot of like newcomers regularly spent a lot of time thinking about. The other part of it that I think was really interesting and challenging that they had to deal with was just that as you get more people, they want more from you as the moderator too. Like they might demand more visibility. They want like input into who becomes a moderator. They want to contest moderation decisions. So you have to think about like, what are like feedback mechanisms that you offer that? So like, do you have like a weekly thread where they can like share their thoughts on like how moderation is operating? Like, let's say you all introduce Fan Art Friday for like, you know, two girls, one podcast. You will probably be getting a lot of feedback from people who maybe don't like fan art. So then you have to think about like, how do we accommodate that? You know, um, so I think that there are like a lot of those questions become more urgent when you have like a community that's not just really large, but also super active. I mean, there are definitely people who say that like they don't want their community to grow past a certain point like the moderators of make america dinner again we're like we might consider capping this community i talked to another super small community and they were like very focused on like having very tough conversations around race and they were like we just go through and weed out inactive members we don't we don't want like excessive size we want to stay small so what in your opinion is the best or most appropriate way to train moderators I, I think it's helpful to have some sort of actual training for starters. Um, don't just like, you know, give, give them some like good advice, pat them on the back and be like, there you go, kiddo. You you have to think about like what that training looks like. So some of the things I've seen, for example, include like having them shadow other trained moderators. So like having them kind of like tag along, like a lot of times moderation teams will have shifts. So like have them tag along with a more experienced person's shift, have them like role play difficult conversations. So one of the key things that a lot of moderators are doing all the time is like de-escalating conflict. And you have seen this, like we've all seen this happen. We've all seen like a thread that's getting out of control. And then like maybe a moderator will step in and like calm people down. Or I mean, if the moderator doesn't step in, the thread just becomes a disaster. So the moderator will be thinking about like de-escalation. So like have them like maybe role play conversations. Like how do you respond to like this or that type of scenario? One of the moderators I spoke to said she actually gives people like a little worksheet with like examples of conversations and she has them like like write down how they would moderate it and then they actually review afterwards like not just like what they would have done but like what she actually did in those actual conversations and that was part of the training i think you also have to train them on the values of your community like depending on what it is your community is devoted to like you have to kind of understand like you know a lot of the under like if you're an activist community like whom are you like taking action against and like how or like if you are like devoted to a particular like form of underlying media like what are the rules of this community what are the other fan spaces where people interact um there's a lot of that knowledge a lot of times with like volunteer moderators you come in kind of knowing that um because you're choosing people from your community but if not that's also a pretty steep learning curve i'd like to pivot this a little bit to ask what can the platforms do in terms of training their moderators. So 
you know, for instance, Facebook groups of a certain (laughs) size, YouTube content creators that reach a certain subscriber count? What can the platforms be putting in place to make sure that their communities are healthier? So I don't think that a lot of big platforms actively train moderators per se. And I think it's because oh, no, they exactly. don't want to be what responsible. Should they know? Yeah. yeah. You know, like, I think this is actually like a big, they're like, we are not responsible for what our community does. So we don't actively <laughs> tell them what to do. Right. But if you could, if you could advise what they should be doing, what do you think the platforms should be doing to get their community communities to be in a healthier spot? Oh, this is this is fun. This is where we you know, come up with our ideal, uh, our ideal network yeah. here. Um, this is the sort of quiz I was expecting, actually. So I'm excited about it. Mm-hmm. Um, we wanted to save it for the end. <laughs> when it comes to like product decision making, like how are you designing your interface? Like what functionality do you have available? You should always be like asking your community and testing against their, especially your moderators and like testing against like what they're already doing, giving them opportunities for feedback, like let them be a voice in your development, an active voice in your development of like tools and resources, you know? So that's like part one. Um, because a lot of times, like a lot of the challenges that moderators face have to deal with the fact that they're trying to do something that like their platform just makes incredibly and unnecessarily difficult. So that's part one. Part two, this is like the controversial one, but if your moderators are the ones creating conversation, like, maybe you should pay them, you know, like in an ideal world. Like I realize that's like basically the opposite of the business model of like most of the social networks that we're talking about. But like, you know, so they're doing this. I mean, they're creating value for you. You know, um, I think that's one part of it. Um, I think like along with like this idea of like paying is like, you know, fair wages and like all of that jazz. Um, the next is like, how do you provide like resources for like mental and emotional strain? So like, it'd be like, how do you like, do you have like, you know, therapists on staff? Do you like have like tools and, and, you know, um, and flows for like when people become over overwhelmed or burned out or, you know, start experiencing like trauma because of what they're having to do? Like, you know, how do you address that? So like, that's, that's a part of it. Um, then like, in terms of like, what you also offer in terms of training, like, best practices, like, you know, wouldn't it be fun if we had like, you know, moderator academies or moderator like camps, and people could talk about like, what worked and what didn't work. And I think moderation is an evolving space. So it's not like there's like one set of like, here is like how you get, you know, like your PhD in online moderation. But I think that it is a very collective it's a process of collective discovery, like creating like better spaces where people who do moderation work can kind of gather and like share best practices and learn from each other. It's like one way forward. Let's put all of those in place because these platforms, yeah, they don't want to take responsibility and it's time for them to take responsibility. And like there's so, you know, Facebook's slogan or motto used to be like move fast and break things. And it's like, all right, well, you've broken enough things. So (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, yeah. I think that, yeah. And I mean, it makes sense. You know, this is like the the early days of the railroad. You had to figure some things out, I bet, you know, but I think um, those are all great ideas for how platforms can build healthier communities, because I think we're definitely in a pretty tough spot right now with like QAnon flourishing. And then now it's too late. Yeah. You know, the platforms crack down on it now. And then the QAnon believers just say, well, that's because they don't want you to know the truth. And like, I'm seeing people yeah. even on yeah. my feed. And I thought I had a pretty... Um, liberal echo chamber mm-hmm. but even on my feed people are talking about pandemic and i'm like are you serious right now fear and uncertainty are like you know great like but i feel like the incentive structure is somewhat flawed right like at the end of the day like yeah. when you look at companies like you know 
like, is Twitter incentivized by its structure to create what we're thinking of as healthy communities where people feel like well adjusted after participating? Or are they incentivized to create like flame wars where everyone's yelling and people are stressed and like, you know, afraid of missing something? Like, I just yeah. think there's a very, you know, I think that's like a fundamental challenge that that is not resolved. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Well, that was dark, but it was also full of light. And so I'd love to end there on the way platforms and groups can start to be reimagined for a healthier world. So thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Anika. Thank you both. To your point, I came across so many groups that are creating like happy, positive spaces um, and so many moderators who are doing that. So there is light. There totally is light. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So thank you. Thank you to all three of you. This was great. Do we think moderators can save the internet slash save the world? What do we think? Mm. I just sort of feel like they have a lot of power in their hands. <laughs> when you asked if they could save the world, I instantly thought of a, a summer blockbuster called The Moderator starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And he just like <laughs> Ooh, saves like everyone I and like fixes it. everything. Yeah, right? yeah. The modern yeah. fight. I'm in. I'm in. I'd can watch that. I'd okay, watch good. That. Can you please um, write that up for me? Put my name on it and bring it to your Hollywood people, if you could. If you don't mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, my people. Yeah, I'll let them know. Okay, I'll let them know. Thank you. We determined that's how you pitch, right? It's like you open your window and just uh, you <laughs> shout the pitch. I yell. I mean, my voice is really high pitch. They hear me. <laughs> <laughs> cool. They throw a contract at you. That's how Done. it happens. It's actually delivered by um, carrier pigeon. It just flies wow. straight into my window. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. Yeah, they have pigeons the, in LA. Yeah, if it's on the right foot, you didn't get it. If it's on the mm. left, you, you're it's good news. Okay, that's good. <laughs> so you know, I I think it's interesting. I think more consumers, more of us users, need to know kind of what to press pressure the tech juggernauts for. Essentially, like if you YouTube should have like a basic training for if you're a content creator who reaches a certain number of subscribers, you know, like I was listening, you guys, I think you know this because I'm obsessed. I listened to the New York times podcast rabbit hole probably a month mm. or two ago. And they have this interview with PewDiePie. And it was so interesting because, you know, all the headlines were like, he's a Nazi. And I never really dug into that scandal, but they interview him and he really for whatever it's worth, struck me as just like a guy doing pranks who like didn't yeah. realize that once you have a certain level of followers doing certain kinds of pranks look really bad, but they probably right. look fine when it's just like you and your boys being stupid on the street corner, mm -hmm. you know? So it's like, mm -hmm. I, I don't feel sorry for him. Like he's fine, whatever. But like, I felt a little bit like it, this was just kind of a, a young bro who didn't, was just like in over his head like i feel like if youtube had you know once you reach whatever it is a million subscribers you go into this you know week month-long course and you with and you learn about ethics and morals and your responsibility as a you know they call them influencers and then there's no training for it yeah even though the name of it acknowledges how much influence they have i i like that a lot i i would go one step further and say that youtube or google should not administer that it should be some third party like yes when you have the ability to reach lots of people strangers and and to your point influence the way they think and perceive the world 
it's not journalism per se, but there is a rigor that journalists go through uh, and a standard of ethics that they adhere to in order to be able to have the privilege, you know, if you work for yeah. a reputable organization. And I think it's th- it's a selling point to the influencers as well. They don't they're not enjoying these scandals they're finding themselves mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. And I know that YouTube has various kinds of trainings for creators. They do. They're not required. But, they're right. just they're like, not required, hey, here's a and button. It's not focused on what it means to have such influence. And I Mm -hmm. think, I don't think content creators should feel punished in any way. I think PewDiePie probably would have loved having some kind of fundamentals before he reached 60 million followers and then the world called him a Nazi and like all the fucking nonsense that followed, which has followed with so many creators. So that's what I'm really interested in. We would love to know what our 2G1P community wants to see more of, how you would like to be I mean, involved in the community. Fan Art Friday is yeah. happening. And then, um, <laughs> yeah, or if you put your, send us your favorite quotes and let's fucking do some merch. <laughs> that's fun. We've been kind of joking about that for a while, but yeah. Like, why not? Please. Let's do some merch. That's a great way to build community. Sell merch to them. Sell merch. <laughs> But you know what? What if what if if they choose the quote or they choose they the it. idea or their sure fan art, yeah. like they get the like half the proceeds? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. No, I'm just making uh, shit up. There just, we go. We were being silly, of course, about the fan art. I mean, half silly, let's be honest. But our community is tr- truly wonderful. You were joking how to, you know, how can they be as perfect as ours? Oh, but ours is great. So, like thoughtful and rational on Discord. Right? It's amazing. Just having reasoned conversations. Bleh. But if we <laughs> ask them to do fan art, I think no, I don't I'm just know that ki- anyone would do guys, it. No, 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 no. <laughs> but it's a really good example of like there is a threshold where you can ask too much of a community, and then you ask too much of them, and then most people don't do it, and then you feel like, man, this was a flop, and this was this was wrong. When yeah, in fact, nobody wants to be told what to do. Yeah, I want to know what they want. Hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm, that's what I want to know. I want to know what they want. What do you want? Follow you up want episodes with certain community members. Or, you know, mm-hmm. with past guests, little updates. Mm-hmm. Do they want to meet each other more? How can we uh, get people being more empathetic to other groups of people that they have not met and that they think are unusual because they've never met them? Mm-hmm. Honestly, if we could raise empathy, I do think that would solve a lot of the world's problems, which I know is like really not on brand for me to say, but I'm sticking with it. I think it's very on brand. You've said you've said that in some regard occasionally. I think it's I think it's great. Spot on. So y'all, as always, you can be in touch with us in multiple ways. So please tweet at me at Junebugger J O O N B U G G E R. I'm at Allie Gold A L L I G O L D. You can email us at 2g1podcast at gmail.com. You can also call us. You could leave us a voicemail when you call and or you could text us at that very same number. That number is 347-871-6548. That number again, 347-871-6LIT. And join our Discord. We're talking about our community and, you know, that is really where... They're going. So discord.gg slash 2G1P. Listeners of the show are hanging out, having conversations every day about anything, but also suggesting show topics and guests. And something we had not said yet on this show um, is a big old thanks to Jerry Duran, one of our listeners, for suggesting yes. today's guest. 
Thank you, Jerry Duran. Yes. And if people would like to contribute to us, Ali, how do they do it? You can go to patreon.com slash 2G1P and please do. These are dark times. Dark times call for dollars. I don't know. (laughs) Catchphrase. All right, y'all. We will catch you next time. Thanks so much. Slash fan paintings on Deviant Art. I mean, produced and edited by Matt Silverman in New York City. Production assistance is provided by the Podglomerate. This show is a production of The Daily Dot, the number one source for in depth reporting about life on the internet. The Podglomerate. Sonic Universe. Please PM me so I can assure you I'm not a total nutcase.